Hey, Dan. What up, guy? You're into this fintech. What's all this I'm hearing about Current? You're going to like this guy. Current is a fintech company that's completely disrupting traditional banking. Wait a second. Does that mean I don't have to drive to the bank anymore? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I manage an important part of my family's finances from one easy-to-use app. Well, I got to get this app, but where can I learn more? It's super easy. Just go to Current.com slash OK, O-K-A-Y, and download the app. That's Current.com slash OK. Current is a financial technology company, not a bank. Banking services provided by Choice Financial Group, member FDIC, and Cross River Bank, member FDIC. Will M&A pick up in 2024? Will this year mark the return of IPOs? Listen to Strategic Alternatives, a podcast from RBC Capital Markets, to get fresh insights on the trends and market forces impacting deal flow across sectors and find out how companies and investors are preparing for potential surge in deal activity and what signals to watch for this year. Listen and subscribe to Strategic Alternatives, the RBC Capital Markets podcast today, wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to OK Computer. I'm Dan Nathan, joined by Deirdre Bosa, host of CNBC's Tech Check. Debo, welcome back. Hello. How are you? Good. We got a big show. You and I have a lot to talk about. We got to talk about your 49ers. We got to talk about the, the Tay-Tay Bowl. At least that's how it was known in my household. And we got to talk about Temu, which took, I think, the bowl by storm. But first <laughs> things first, just a little housekeeping. Stick around for a conversation that I had. We are launching our Funders and Founders series brought to you by RBC Capital. And today we had Rick Heitzman, the co-founder and CEO of First Mark Capital, VC firm here in New York. Many listeners and viewers of the pod know Rick pretty well. He's been coming on with us for years. And also, Zach Ritano. Zach is the CEO and co-founder of Roe, the telehealth company that Rick led the Series A a few years ago. These guys have been great friends. And really what we do is we talk about kind of the life cycle of their relationship as Rick, as a board member, as an early investor, as an advisor. And we talk a bit about um, that relationship. We also obviously get into Roe's huge push into GLP-1s um, there. And so this is a really interesting conversation. I think those who are just interested interested in the space, interested in the relationships that VCs and founders have, and getting getting a sense for where we are in the private tech markets, too. So stick around for that. But D, you and I, we got lots to talk about. There's stuff on the chatbots, on the co-pilot, on all that sort of stuff. But let's talk about- a week, lots of consumer stuff. Lots <laughs> of consumer stuff. Let, let's talk about, first things first, the Super Bowl here, because my 18-year-old daughter, I got a text at 6 p.m. on Sunday. She's in boarding school. She said, what's the YouTube TV password? She she was watching the Super Bowl because she's like Taylor's number one fan. She watched the whole bowl. I got a text after OT saying, Taylor Swift, it was all caps in our family chat, all caps, Taylor won the MF Super Bowl, dot, dot, dot. Okay, so you can- So you're telling me- your daughter watched four hours of yes. football for 58 seconds of yes. Taylor Swift. Yes. How about that? Okay. So talk about like widening the tent or whatever you want to call it. I know there was a lot of haters out there. And listen, I am sorry for your Niners. Brock Purdy played an absolutely amazing game. So like shout out to the Niners. He's going to have a great long career. You know, I will admit that I am not a San Francisco native. In fact, I'm not even American. I'm Canadian. So football to me is more of like a social event, but it certainly was here. And my whole street, I got to tell you, anytime anything happened, you would hear all the houses on the street, like collectively gasp or collectively cheer. And in the end, it was one very large signal expression of outrage because it was so close. I mean, not being a huge football fan, I was absolutely glued to the screen for overtime. <laughs> I also didn't know how it worked, right? Because in hockey, it's like sudden death, first goal. And I remember, you know, I was trying to figure out whether touchdown won it, whether they went on, but it was a very exciting game. I mean, yes, there was Taylor Swift, but the game itself was fantastic. And that's coming from a non-football fan. Well, I'll tell you this, is Shanahan, the coach of the Niners, is getting some criticism because it sounds like they didn't exactly know how the new overtime rules worked either. Um, <laughs> all right. So while your Niners or your adopted Niners didn't win, it seems like the biggest winner of the Super Bowl was the Temu. And just here are some stats. And first things first, I also want to say is that I first heard about this company in your reporting. I think you were even doing it before they did the 2023 Super Bowl, which really kind of put it on a lot of U.S. consumers' radars. But here's a couple stats. This is from CNBC. We'll put this all in the show notes. The number one most downloaded app in the U.S. in January. That was 
was before this Super Bowl blitz, okay? 51 million monthly active users, up 300% year over year. This from the information. Goldman Sachs estimates that Timo spent $1.2 billion on meta advertising in 2023. And this is from CNBC. On the Apple App Store on Monday, the top three most downloaded free apps were Paramount Plus, Copilot, and Temu. So those were all big advertisers during the Super Bowl. Let's start with Temu because, again, they probably, what, had three ads. They probably spent over $25 million, but everybody's talking about it. Temu is a phenomenon in almost every sense of the word. And if you want sort of background context analysis, make sure you check out our weekly that we did on Tech Check. That's from a year ago, and it's only increased in popularity. As you said, Dan Nathan, a lot of folks during the Super Bowl were like, what is the shop like a billionaire, but buy cheap crap online? Um, but it's worked. I mean, they have been spending so much money. And it used to be thought that Chinese companies couldn't break into the US market. They would have a really hard time doing so capturing the American consumer that is so lucrative, right? Like, sure, you've got a 300 million Chinese middle class that can spend money, but Americans are spending real money, like a lot, a lot of dollars. So if you crack the American consumer as a Chinese company, it's just such a lucrative thing. And you go beyond China. And even Alibaba didn't do that for so many years because it was thought to be so difficult. Temu has just swept the American landscape, consumer landscape. And part of it is those Super Bowl ads, but it's really cheap dollar store bargain basement stuff, right? Like I think kids love it, right? Because you can buy so much with so little. And it raises questions about this business model, right? How is that sustainable? We've seen this before and that you spend a lot of money to acquire these customers, but it's not very profitable. Well, you look at Temu's success in China, and it doesn't exist in China. It's called Pinduoduo, right? Or PDD Group is a public company. It trades, it's ADR's trade here in the United States. It also trades in Hong Kong been incredibly successful and has basically proved out the model that you can go and lose a ton of money over time just to capture the consumer and then slowly raise prices. So that's probably the business model here. But while they're losing money now and they're spending billions of dollars in advertising and discounts, there is a path to profitability that it has sort of displayed in China. I don't know if it's going to work the same way here. That may be an open question, but it's just this phenomenon that has, you know, a ton of American consumers now, most downloaded app. So you mentioned PDD, Pindaudau. I'm probably massacring the name there, but this is a company that is, um, it is wildly profitable. They're expected to have $33 billion in last year's sales going up to maybe $47 billion. I suspect the U.S. is a small part of that, right, as Temu ramps a little bit. Do they break out, D, any of the kind of international sort of sales? I'm, I'm assuming this is primarily um, China-based, but the opportunity is obviously abroad. Yeah, because there's just bigger wallets in the U.S. It's also kind of like this Trojan horse, right? You put this against the geopolitical background of rising tensions and, you know, U.S. government wanting to ban the likes of TikTok. And actually, there was a movement to try to get Temu to not put those ads on during the Super Bowl, which didn't work. How many did they have? I think five? I saw one in overtime as well, but obviously that didn't work. And the way that they advertise too is no nod to the fact that this is a Chinese company. So I don't know how profitable the U.S. business is, probably not very profitable. But again, the Chinese business is more mature and has found that path to profitability. And it's interesting. So you mentioned TikTok and you mentioned for, you know, over five years, there's been a push by, you know, it's kind of bipartisan in a way to ban TikTok for a whole host of reasons, privacy, misinformation, and that's only going to probably get dialed up this year a little bit into the election. But when you think about what this could mean, these cheap direct-to-consumer Chinese imports for U.S. retailers like Target and Walmart and the like, right now, assuming low penetration in the U.S., it really isn't much of a threat right now. You know, Target's a company expected to do over $100 billion in sales. Walmart, probably near a half a trillion dollars in sales. But if you just think about defending a U.S. consumer standpoint from cheap Chinese imports, it seems like this would be an easy one. And, And, you know, this also also comes at a time where the Biden administration, or at least maybe his campaign, launched their very first TikTok. And they've, you know, so it's just kind of weird, like some of the, like the messaging that we're getting from the government, it doesn't seem particularly consistent. Well, and that's the difficult part of this, right? Like the government wants less Chinese apps, less Chinese goods flooding our borders, but you can't deny that they've sort of captured something with a consumer. And it was so ironic to see Biden's, and cringy, I will say, to see Biden's first 
TikTok, but it's kind of like do as I say, not as I do, right? He needs to capture that younger demographic. And where are they? They're on TikTok and they're also shopping on Timu and Shein, by the way. It's sort of what I call like the new guard of Chinese tech. Alibaba, Tencent, they were sort of the old garb Baidu as well. And there's a new class of Chinese companies that aren't just big in China, but they're big here. And that is a key difference. Let's talk about another. Uh, this was a Super Bowl commercial, that I think, that um, was talked about a lot. And that was Microsoft's co-pilot commercial. And they're trying to kind of humanize AI and, you know, just kind of tamp down some of the fears that maybe a lot of like the sort of public, you know, 125 million people tuned in to watch the Super Bowl. And they're probably not tracking a whole heck of a lot of what's gone on with some of the biggest companies in at least the U.S., but obviously the world also, and the sort of investments that they're making in generative AI and the way that they're projecting these products and how they're going to help consumers or businesses and the like. And so this was a, a very humanizing sort of commercial. I think people kind of liked it, but it's kind of interesting. You and I are recording this on Tuesday afternoon, and there was an article in the Wall Street Journal. And I, you know, listen, this was my experience too. It was basically saying that Microsoft's Copilot has been the hand of beta testers for a while. And some of the reviews are coming in fairly lukewarm. And then for some of us, and you and I've talked about this on the pod over the last couple of months, like I'm generally pretty underwhelmed with ChatGPT. You know, obviously people have been underwhelmed with Bard and now Gemini. I like the perplexity, but here's the last point I'll just make is that if I don't use any Microsoft products, which I don't, I don't have Office, right? So Copilot, it's not going to be a thing for me, right? But I did just try Gemini Advanced from Google because I use Gmail, I use YouTube, I use a whole host of other alphabet products, and that might be the one that I go with. It might not be as good as ChatGPT. It might not have the integrations that, let's say, Copilot has because they've been testing this for a while, but consumers are likely to choose one, and consumers who don't use Microsoft products are likely to use something, maybe it's perplexity, the way that, and I used this example on a pod yesterday. In the late 90s, people were using the search engine that, that came loaded up on the disk on the PC that they bought, right? But as soon as Google came around, it was lights out, right? And so perplexity could have that ability to displace like some incumbents right now. And so, you know, like, I just think it's like the jury's still out, despite the fact that Microsoft has, you know, gained a trillion dollars in market cap over the excitement of Copilot and ChatGPT in integration. And that's just happened over the last four months or so. I thought it was interesting to have Copilot as kind of an enterprise product. I'm in the same boat as you. I don't have any sort of touch points with Microsoft. I do my docs on Google Docs through a browser. Um, I work on a MacBook. And who is going to actually buy Copilot, right? Like who watching the Super Bowl? Maybe they were pitching it to <laughs> business executives. Everyone was watching the Super Bowl. So maybe that incremental sale is worth it and someone's going to install it at their company. But the future of search is something that I have been spending a lot of time thinking about. And it's Google's to lose, right? As you say, we use all of these Google products. The distribution, the habit of Google search is so entrenched for most people. And you just made me think of the fact that Google didn't have a commercial in the Super Bowl. How easy would it have been to show them that there's a toggle button now in their Google app on your iPhone where you could turn on a free version of Gemini, their version of ChatGPT, yet they didn't do that. And it's really indicative of like this broader strategy, right, that has worked so far for Microsoft. It's seen as sort of the AI leader. It's not experimenting. It's actually trying to put these tools in your hands, even if they're not as impressive or cracked up to be all that you heard they were. They're just pushing it. Google's still kind of moving slowly. It's not making these bold moves. I wondered when Gemini came out if maybe we'd be Geminiing things instead of Googling things. But obviously, Google's not prepared to make that switch and totally cannibalize one of the greatest businesses of all time, which is search ads. You brought up the name perplexity, which is something I do use more and more these days. So it, to bring it to the masses and to the mainstream in the Super Bowl, it seems like a missed opportunity for no, Google. No no doubt. Um, and again, they just kind of relaunched this thing. And, and the name is not something that's easy to turn into a verb, a Gemini advanced. Um, but I will say this about perplexity. And I think it was about a month ago, the company raised $74 million 
stars at a $520 million valuation. I'll just say this. I'll bet you this company is going to get bought probably by an Apple. It's probably a, a deal that Apple could get by regulators. When you think about just how much Microsoft has invested in the space, how much Amazon and Alphabet have invested in the space, we know that Apple has hinted to something in the generative AI space. But, you know, this is probably a deal that could happen. And the founders of this company, the CEO at least, is ex-OpenAI. If you're thinking about this technology as something that we don't truly understand what it could mean and how impactful it would be, you don't want a couple companies just running away with it, right? You'd want a bunch of big platform companies competing. It'll be better for consumers. It'll be better for businesses. And it'll actually be better for humanity, if you will. So that's something that I think is kind of an easy one to keep a close eye on. And then you and I had also talked about how Alphabet and Amazon have been going back and forth investing in Anthropic, which is also a bunch of ex-OpenAI folks. And so again, Alphabet will never be able to buy a company like that. And especially at the valuation that's trading at, I don't think any of them will want to, but Amazon is also likely to kind of make a deal in the generative AI space too. So that's something like, let's keep an eye on. Does that make sense to you? It does. But one thing I would add is let's not forget about Meta and the open source model, right? We had an announcement from NVIDIA today, RTX, which is basically edge computing, having the capability of generative AI right on your computer. And it relies on open source models like Meta, like Mistral. And I don't know who wins this thing, right? It's Alphabet, Microsoft, they're investing in closed source models. And if we actually sort of have this capability able to live on our phones or our computers or devices, it's still kind of an open question. What what model gets the most attention? What lives on in the greatest capacity? So I think with the NVIDIA announcement today and what we think Apple could do in AI, which is more edge computing on device AI, the open source models like Meta's Llama and Mistral could be interesting to watch. Yeah. And you know, it's also interesting to mention that you, you just said that Google did not do an advertisement as it relates to Gemini. They did do an ad advertising for hardware. They did do, I, I think it was a Pixel phone and showing how they they're using AI on the device. And I think that's a big story that you're going to be spending, I think you know this, a lot of time on, especially as we get closer to June and Apple's Worldwide Developers Forum, because that's one area that they can probably really lean into as they think about what sort of hardware they're going to be coming out and Vision Pro with spatial computing and all the integrations that they could have there across services. Yeah. Um, although Pixel phones, right? It's interesting. They keep pushing their hardware in the Pixel phone, but they just have such small market cap. Android, though, that was the interesting thing about the Gemini announcement, putting it all under one umbrella. They do have the capability to roll it out to half the smartphones in the world through the Android operating system. But again, you know, it, does Google have to do something bold here? Maybe we'll see that at IO later this year. Yeah. All right. Let's talk quickly. You got your hands on a Vision Pro last week. You did a bit of a review here. A bunch of my like tech nerdy friends without naming any names. They all bought them. They're kind of early adopters. And generally, they're very optimistic about it. A friend of mine, Cleo Abram, who is a phenomenal tech journalist from Huge If True, who's also been on the pod, she did a great review of it with Marquise Brownlee. You know him. He was actually in your long-form piece that you did last week on it. And she made a really great point. She basically said, this is version one, and it's excellent. Of course, there are some drawbacks to it. But like, she's like, this is as bad as it gets from here on out. And I thought that was really kind of an interesting way to think about it. And then from my friends, I've heard so much. There's gamers. There's people who just like to kind of chill out and use maybe a, a Headspace app. There's those who like to be very introverted and watch a movie on their own. I've heard a lot of examples. Ben Thompson and Stratechery this morning was talking about how he used it on a coach plane flight and it just changed mm -hmm. his experience altogether. <laughs> you know what I mean? So like the use cases right now, they're just scratching the surface. It's not something for maybe me or you, because I can't think of too many pieces of anything that I go out and spend $3,500 on, on a Lark. But, you know, right now, I think the early reviews are like, this is going to be amazing, but it's not for everyone at the moment. I'm just curious, what were some of your takeaways from a tech standpoint? Because another one of my friends who's a tech founder, and he said, this is going to be a $50 billion business for them in the not so distant future. I would agree with everything that you just said. I would add one more word, 
future. It is the future. And that is so instantly clear from when you put it on within five minutes of having that headset on. And I read the reviews and I saw the videos of, you know, the demos and stuff. And I actually brought my eight-year-old with me to try it out. And he was looking on the screen. He was kind of bored. The screen was showing what I was seeing. And my jaw just kind of dropped. Like it is so like almost magical. Like it reminded me of the first time. And I remember exactly where I was when I had my first iPhone in China. And I remember I opened up the box and I was looking at it and it just, the intuition of Apple products makes it a step above anything that you've seen before. Even though you've seen something similar, like a different headset or the Oculus, the Vision Pro, I don't know what I would use it for. I'm like you, but I want to buy it. I'm not going to. I'm going to resist because I know that this is the first generation. And you know, my husband makes fun of me when I try to be an early adopter. I had the first Apple Watch and I haven't worn one since. But the Vision Pro is just this incredible piece of technology. And I have no doubt that the killer app is coming and we're all going to want one. And we're all going to, if you can afford it, you're going to find a way to buy it. And then when the price comes down, as it inevitably will, who knows how long that's going to be. It, it's, it can be a mainstream product. It's, it's incredible. That's all I have to say, but I can't describe it because you actually have to put it on to understand. And, and when my eight-year-old put it on too, by the way, he was equally blown away in a way that he just, you can't understand it when you're just looking at a screenshot of someone else testing it out. It's funny. There's been a lot of discussion that it's the iPad killer, right? When you think about an iPad, one of the biggest criticisms that it really isn't for producing content, it's for like taking in content, right? And so what I've seen in some of these reviews, like this is the sort of device where you can just create, you can do multiple things at once. Um, you can get, you know, a keyboard for it and you can actually just type on the keyboard and you can see the stuff coming up in a way. So it's kind of interesting in a way that over the last, call it 15 years or so, we've gotten really used to this big hunk of metal and glass that we've been banging on and not being particularly productive with. But all of a sudden, you have this other device that, you know, is really changing the game. It's kind of sci-fi minority report sort of stuff. I just think that a lot of those videos I've seen online of these kind of nerds walking around doing stuff with their hands in the, in the air and everything like that outside, I think there's going to be a little bit of a stigma uh, with that for a while. And then the last piece of the puzzle is like, it's going to have to get much smaller, right? Like this is not something that people are going to be using Oh, it was very uncomfortable. Yeah. Even yeah, twenty yeah. minutes on, it was it was uncomfortable, and you know you could really feel it on. But the thing is, that's interesting about the Vision Pro is that it's a very personal device. Even though you know you can see through it and you can interact with your outside surroundings, it's not like the Oculus, which is meant to be social, more of a gaming device. This is meant to immerse you. And I was thinking about that. I was talking about it with my eight-year-old. And it's like, can you imagine watching a movie and you all have your own headset on? It's not a social, not a social thing. And that future does scare me a little bit. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, I think the probably the first mass adoption will be in the enterprise. I know a lot of folks who are developing a lot of services, you know, whether it's training modules, I mean, the list goes on and on and on, but that's still a very expensive device and one that's going to be iterated upon over the next five years in sort of a big way. So it'll be interesting to see if we see business businesses, you know, kind of use this for productivity purposes and cut down travel expense. I mean, the list goes on and on. I mean, we all remember what Mark Zuckerberg's vision for the metaverse was in late 2021 when he renamed the company and, and you know, did the big thing. I, it's kind of interesting, though, that it sounds like Apple has leapfrogged them on the hardware and the software front, but obviously also on the price point, too. So um, there's going to be a convergence there, I suspect. Yeah, absolutely. But I think after testing it out, it's Apple's to lose now. And the price hopefully will only come down. Um, it's it's a pretty amazing product. All right, Debo, we covered a lot of ground. I know that you're going to be very busy. A bunch of gig economy companies are reporting this week. I'm sure I'll be seeing you on CNBC's Fast Money over the course of the week. I really appreciate you being here, breaking all of the Super Bowl ad and related consumer um, insights down. Also, stick around for my conversation. It's Funders and Founders with Rick Heitzman and Zach Ratana. Hey listeners, it's Dan here. I want to tell you about a company that I'm really excited about. It's called Current. It's a fintech company that's completely disrupting traditional banking. I'm a new Current customer. And it's already helping me and my entire family manage our finances, all from one easy to use app. So try Current for yourself and get the app by going to current.com slash okay. That's current.com slash okay. Current is a financial technology company, not a bank. Banking services provided by Choice Financial Group, member FDIC, and Cross River Bank, 
member FDIC. In today's hyper-fast markets, it's never been more important to consider every option to raise capital, drive growth, and create value. Stay one step ahead with Strategic Alternatives, a podcast from RBC Capital Markets. In this season, RBC's experts will examine how corporates and investors are evaluating their strategic plans, reassessing their portfolios, and reallocating capital to help them lead today and define tomorrow. Tune in to Strategic Alternatives, the RBC Capital Markets podcast today. This is the inaugural edition of, of Funders and yes. Founders. Premier. Presented Global, by, Global Premier. By RBC Capital Markets. Yeah. And they're a brand new partner of Rich Social Media. And we're really happy to have them. Obviously, Current is our landlord and a great partner of yeah. ours, too. But you have beef with the name. And just so you know, beef with my podcasting name. I don't have be- oh, beef with the, oh, be, yes. I think Founders should come okay first. Computer. I think Founders should come first. Do you really? Yeah. Yeah, founders first. So we can change it. They all do right. also start the company first, and then the funding so, comes. So because this is the inaugural edition yeah. of it, welcome to Founders and Funders. Love it. This is uh, the first one here. And so you know who else had beef with the name OK Computer it was Kara Swisher. She's been on a bunch, and she every single time, she's like, well, what's with the name? I don't get the name. And I'm like, all right, can we just do the pod? I love Kara. She's coming back on. I know, I have with her, her book. book. I have, have, you, have you read it? I'm, no, she, I just got it. I'm going to read it. I'm really psyched. The, the back Wait, of the book is amazing. All the it's through. all the praise that she has. And so she's taken all these quotes. They're basically like tweets from Elon calling her names and stuff like that. Oh, this funny. funny. She's got great sense of humor, and I'm really psyched about the book. All right, so we are here. Rick Heitzman, he is the co-founder and CEO of First Mark Capital. You are the co-founder and CEO of Roe. That'd be Zach Rotano. Mm-hmm. And so welcome back, both of you guys, to the pod. This is going to be like a cool pod because you guys, we're all great friends. You guys have known each other a long time. Six, seven years. Six, seven so, years. Yeah. You guys spent a lot of time together. That's I spent right. a lot of time with both of you. And it was like, wouldn't it be kind of weird if we had a pod that was really formal, not like all the conversation we have when the mic's not on? Mm-hmm. And that's what you prefer. You listen to a lot of podcasts, don't you? Yeah, not at 2x the speed that you do. Well, I do. All right, first of all, because we all listen to that one. What was the acquired podcast? It was a great GLP podcast. Was. It, was, it was on the history of Nomen Ortis. It was yeah. four hours. It was awesome. It was I really listened to it at 2x. Podcast. You listened yeah. to it at 2x. No, I listened to it at I don't one, do, three. I don't do you don't two do 2x? Really? 1x. Yeah. Did you learn stuff in that podcast? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Because you have become, and I mean this sincerely, and I'm not just blowing smoke, one of the foremost experts, in my opinion, on this space. You are amazingly articulate. I know you sat down with Melissa Lee, the host of CNBC's Fast Money, for a doc yeah. that she's doing on this space. And she immediately hit me and he's like, the dude's brilliant. And you're like encyclopedic kind of knowledge of it. So when you listen to that four-hour pod, yeah. you learn stuff of on, course, on the space? I, of course. I thought, I mean, I'm, I'm excited to read the the book that they referenced in the podcast, which is not available in the United States. So I think I Oh, really? Is it in like Danish or or Norwegian? I think it's just available in Europe. We're we're going to put that podcast in the show notes because it's pretty fast. It's well well worth it. And Nova Norris was the FT company of the year and the CEO was the CEO of the year. For those who don't know it, I'm pretty sure... It's the biggest market cap of any company that's not American right now. It's crazy. And, and the other thing that I found was really interesting is that they have been competing with Eli Lilly for 100 oh, years. Yeah, and years. right now, we are all obsessed on Fast Money every night. We talk yeah. about Eli Lilly Again, and yes. Novo, but this has been going on for 100 years. 100 years. It's a great story. I also think, and they called this out in the podcast, what was really interesting is Novo has, I mean, they've focused on a basically a single disease for 100 yeah. years. As yeah. a founder and a builder, yeah. that that story, it resonates with you because they've been like singularly focused on a mission and now they are reaping the rewards of hundreds of billions of dollars in market cap. And obviously they're in the catbird seat, this is Novo in particular, of just owning this market for years to come. They just made $11 billion acquisition. I think half of the Fortune 500 goes bankrupt over every 30 years. People don't years. know that fact. Do you know what I'm saying? Like people assume that like Coke and Pepsi okay. and, and, and GE and stuff like that, GE almost went back. GE almost went Well, GE got spun. I mean, think about all the big broadcasting things, all yeah. the big tobacco companies. was like literally a meme stock like 50 years ago. You know yeah. That? Westinghouse. Well, it was also, you know, in every business from starting CBS radio and TV to creating radios. Yeah. And now I think they don't exist. Maybe, maybe they have a toaster division. I, I think a lot of our listeners, um, you've been on, we've talked about GLP-1s. We've talked yeah. about, you know, Roe's push into the space. We've talked about my experience as a customer yeah. of Roe, Roe Body. That was a great pod. That was in July. We talked a little bit about the origin story. I definitely want to hit that. Really what we want to do with this series is is get the kind of the good stuff between yeah. the founder and the funder and how that relationship has evolved over time. Rick and I had a, a, a great conversation with Alexis Ohanian, who's also an early 
early investor in row. It was down at iConnections Global yes. Alt was about two weeks ago. Yep. And it was really interesting. Um, I don't know if your ears were ringing, but those guys talking about their relationship on a board relationship and an advisory relationship with a company. So that was really interesting. We'll put that in the show notes. Let's talk about the origin story a little yep. bit, because for me, it's one that has evolved a little bit. I mean, you and I met, I think, about five years ago, and some yeah. of the things that you guys were focused on then is very different than you're focused on. And we've added products and services, but I think the inspiration has always been the same. So the North Star has been the same, but any company, I mean, you, you iterate your way there. I can tell sort of this part with a big smile on my face, and I've, I've told it a few times because everyone is alive and doing well, but every person in my family has had some life-threatening illness at some point in time, myself included. So I have a congenital heart condition. I had a heart procedure when I was 18. My sister and my mom, they each have had their own life-threatening challenges and battle things to this day. And then my dad has also had four heart attacks and a stroke. And we all benefited from the fact that my dad was a physician. You know, really, he was able to save our, our life at some point in time because of, obviously, his, his background as a doctor. And I think that even more than that, the biggest sort of thing that I noticed that when your dad is your doctor is that they don't just care about your health in service of hitting certain biomarkers. They care about your health in service of you living a happy and fulfilled life. And usually that starts with what you want like what you want to achieve. And so I think that that's really the healthcare system. What we refer to as row. what we're trying to build is this concept of a goal-oriented healthcare system. So it starts with what the patient wants, and then it tries to deliver that in the most effective and convenient way. We have vertically integrated a doctor's office, pharmacy, and labs, again, all through the idea of trying to help that patient accomplish that goal. Over the last six or seven years, we've helped millions of patients, one in every single county in the U.S. I think when you say like, you know, where we started and how we've sort of thought about building over time, and I'm sure a therapist would have a lot to say about about this, but in many ways, I think I'm trying to recreate my dad with software. Mm -hmm. Like I want the experience that I grew up with, one that, yes, cared about my health, but did so in service of what I wanted to achieve. I think my dad has always helped me and my family. Yes, he's protected us, but he's helped us play offense. And I think that the healthcare system is largely structured to help patients play defense. And the trust that's built over time, and I do think what you can accomplish when you view healthcare through that lens, is really magical. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I want everyone to have that. I think it requires incredible technology to be able to unlock that. And so that's what we've been building over the last seven years. Why we got into GLP-1 specifically, it was a combination of a few things. One, we've been in obesity for three years. I'll sort of give the expedited version mm -hmm. here. We've been in obesity for three years. So it's not something that, which is about half the life of the company. So it's not something that, you know, we saw Jimmy Fallon make a joke about Ozempic at the Oscars and suddenly added it. We've been working on this for years. We've helped hundreds of thousands of patients start their weight loss journey. And through that, it was something that we saw in the data them ask for. We started to look at the future of how the space was evolving, cardiometabolic health more generally. And then I saw it change my dad's life. So he has diabetes. He lost 40 pounds on Ozempic. And it really served as this beautiful, what we refer to it in, at Rose, this jetpack for positive behavior change. Mm -hmm. So Yes, he started eating differently. He started losing weight, but he exercised more and his whole life, I would say, transformed, which you've talked about a lot too. We have, and, and we'll put the um, July pod um, yeah. in the show notes to kind of double click on a lot of those things. There's yeah. one other thing I think is really interesting, a common thread, right? So when the company started, it was Roman. You were mm -hmm. really focused on erectile dysfunction. One of the things that, and you've been very vocal about it, and we've all seen the commercials yeah. and, and the like here, you wanted to destigmatize that. And that's also a big part of what's gone on with the Roe Body Program and as it relates to obesity. And I think that's really interesting. So that's like a common thread, taboo and destigmatizing things. You and I have talked about it, and Rick and I have talked about it offline. With that comes a lot of good stuff. It comes a lot of goodwill with your customers and the like, right? So talk to us a little bit about that because like you're almost bookending from the start of Roman to where you are with Roe Body. Yeah, I think there's so much unnecessary shame in people's general desire to improve themselves and how they want to improve themselves. And I think both like there needs to be particularly related to obesity because each of these things have their different sort of hurdles, right? Erectile dysfunction, I think even the name originally was referred to as impotence or weak and it's it's tied up in toxic masculinity and sense of self and confidence. But also I think people see the tremendous positive role that like healthy intimacy can play in people's lives, that positive cascading impact. So there's different challenges that people have. So it relates to obesity, I think that there's so much stigma because people falsely 
view it as solely an issue of willpower mm -hmm. and self-discipline. And again, at that July pod, we talked about why that couldn't be sort of further from, from the truth. But it is a health condition and one of the few that is both incredibly prevalent. So the majority of the US population has overweight or has obesity, but also one in which when you see someone and they have it, people do make a snap judgment about that person's character. And so there's tremendous stigma. And I think that there's both stigma about people taking action to improve their body composition. There's tremendous judgment about how they do it. There's tremendous judgment if they don't decide to make a change. It's kind of like, you know, heads I win, tails you lose for people who have overweight or have obesity. If they struggle with it and want to improve, everyone says, well, why do, why do you feel the need to change? And if they don't, people judge them either way. So there's so much stigma that I think one of the things we try to really do at Roe is unapologetically fight for what that individual wants. Mm -hmm. If they want to lose weight and they want to improve their overall health, we're here for them, but we will not pressure them into needing to make that or wanting to make that change. So I think that that's just a core belief that there's so much about people wanting to improve their own health, how they feel, how they look, all of these different things that need far less judgment for them to live happy and fulfilled lives. And I think one of the reasons we try to really put stakes in the ground is, is we want to shift the Overton window. I think what you're doing is basically being both proactive and positive. Mm-hmm. And, well you know, thinking about being overweight, dysfunction, you know, there's negative stigma. And most people that are going to treat those things are both stigmatized and feel on the defensive. They're, they're mm -hmm. trying to fix something that's inherently broken. But a lot of those times, not only do they have comorbidities, but they're unsure how you feel about it. But Roe has provided an avenue to be positive, to be proactive. And when you do that and you lead someone out positive perspective, you build trust. And I think that's where Roe is also changing the game. And they're building a deep relationship with their customers based on trust because there was this element of shame and uncomfortableness that you've helped them overcome some of those things. And then you've worked with them across conditions because some of these things are actually symptoms, mm -hmm. not causes. Yep. And we've been able to fix, you know, whether ED was a symptom, we've been able to fix a root cause or being overweight was a symptom where it fixed a root cause. A lot of our things are going down that path in a way that's very, very different than traditional healthcare. Yeah, I think, I mean, we, we hear from our patients every day about the judgment that they do receive either in their personal or professional lives, and there's so much data to support that, but also in the existing healthcare system. And I think that that's one of the beautiful things about when medicine is done really well, it is judgment-free in that way, about the the reason why they want to take a specific action, their political beliefs, whatever it may be, the, the best doctors treat the patient in front of them, and they do so in sort of an unapologetically judgment-free way. Let's take a step back, Rick. So you met um, Z- Six, what? seven years ago. For, I think they know that you've been an investor in some of those successful consumer-oriented kind of, you know, direct-to-consumer. What was it um, when you met Z? Because you also have probably passed on um, hundreds, if not thousands. Including really including very, very large companies also. Yeah, no, of course. And uh, so there were some, there, there were some hits and misses and that sort of thing. Yeah, but like, in this space, there was probably plenty that you passed on. What, what yes. did you find interesting about Zach as a founder and, and the kind of business plan that you kind of saw in front of you at the time about Roman? Well, I think it was very compelling in that we love companies that are trying to solve problems that are very personal. So the whole story he told of whether having a heart attack at a young age or working with his father we're understanding a lot of the elements, at least first in ED, were all things he understood very well. We also love this background, and he was coming out of Shout, which was an app that he started out of YC, which didn't go well. And I like people who have a little bit of a chip on their shoulder, and you know, not everything works right away. So being able to say, all right, I figured out, and you learn more from failure. So I figured out some things I'm going to take it to the next piece. And then I liked, it wasn't that he was able to figure out, oh, you know, Viagra's coming off patent. I could sell a whole bunch of ED drugs. It was, which which is still stuck with me, that ED was an engine light for a man's health. Mm -hmm. And that engine light for the man's health, if you're able to build trust with them, was able to open up a conversation among men who hate talking about their health and hate going to the doctor. And therefore, you could build a bigger, deeper relationship, which could both affect lives and build a big business. So he had the tip of a spear and a why now of buyer coming off patent. He really deeply understood the problem and had a path where I could build a huge company in one of the biggest markets in the world and also was deeply thoughtful and had a lot of the other things that, you know, you can't really quantify at first. So immediately fell in love with the opportunity. And I think we we're pretty dogged about pursuing it. All right. So Shout came out of Y Combinator, correct? Yep. Okay. I read that in the Wall Street Journal. We'll put that uh, article in there. He sold burritos out of his apartment window. Now he's running a billion dollar startup. Um, so 
better than the opposite. Yeah. So, right, so, yeah. so, so, yeah. No, a hundred percent. But, <laughs> but you just mentioned shout as as something that didn't go well. There's an interesting yeah. anecdote in that story, and 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 it was interesting. Uh, the Alexis quote about that too, in a way. And I'm just curious: was Y Combinator everything that you thought it was going to be as you were looking to start a company? And I'm really curious because Rick, you've also, as an early stage investor, you've inv- invested in plenty of companies that went through Y Combinator. Yeah. I think a lot of our listeners would love to hear get any dirt, anything good, like anything like that. You know what I mean? That we don't know about, like. Yeah. I mean, it's definitely evolved over the years. So, and I did it actually, wow, about 10 years ago. So it's tough to say, but I can comment like what I really loved about it. I went through YC, I was 20. 23 years old, I drank the YC Kool-Aid and I at the, uh, I still to this day, it's one of the most meaningful and important experiences that I've ever. You did I've, like the dinners ever... at PG's house and the spaghetti and all that sort of stuff? You, you can, like, you know, just, is I love, I love, no? when I, when I hear that, you know, that Dan voice right there, oh, I know you you're know, just like, you know, <laughs> know, yeah. cynical, you know you're being cynical. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Look, you get, you get yeah. 50 companies together, they yeah. live in Mountain View for four months, they do meet up once a week and, and I think that the thing that was most valuable to me is YC, like like, yes, you have the office hours. To this day, one of my most popular message threads is my YC Summer 14 Still, batch. Like, to this day, awesome. 10 years. And there are, it's like Chatham House rules. We're helping each other to this day. And there's people that range from people who are running public companies to starting companies to investors to current operators, whatever it may be. And they're constantly helping each other. Yeah. So there's that. They have two rules, which is the one sort of motto, which is make something people want. And I think that people overcomplicate it. Not something people need, something people want. And there's two ways to do that, which is write code and talk to users, which is basically means build and talk to your customer, build and talk to your customer. Those two things have been guiding lights for me 10 years later. And I think that incredibly influential and also in terms of the network. If people ask questions today, like, is it worth 7% of your company? Yeah. What's the experience? Like, I don't know, I did it 10 years ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I have no idea, but the people there are have been like friends and partners for life. Alexis, is, that's where I met Alexis. Yeah. He's now on our board. Rick was actually a customer of Shout. That's how I, the way I first wait, met Rick. Was he the guy who said I need a cronut? And, no, and, and the way I first oh, met Rick was had I, I known at the time. Rick customer support. Really? The, uh, uh, under the name. <laughs> I won't. We did have a customer support, it was your, a universal customer support name. Yeah. Um, Which that largely manned by you. Was, was named by me. And yeah. people seem to respond to this name far better than responding to my name. So we did have a different name. It's 10 years ago. I hope that's not illegal. If it is, please cut it. But um, <laughs> it's amazing. we had a different customer support agent that people were far kinder to yeah. when when I chose this name. And that's who I interacted with with Rick. So you had like um, an alter ego? I had an alter ego. That's, that's right. Alias. Um, an alias. Uh, wow. Responded to CRM emails at higher rates, better engagement across the board. I don't recommend people doing that. So you that, met but. Alexis there when he was there for Reddit? Uh, he was there as a partner, oh, just, a partner. Uh, just helping out. And okay. something that Rick, I think, mentioned was, you know, he was excited about all these reasons to pursue Roe. And I think that the same goes for founders. Like, I think when people say, oh, well, why did you why did you choose Firstmark? Like, why someone is investing in your company? It's been six years. Like, really understanding why that partner is excited and why they want to go on that journey with you. Because if it's successful, it's a decade of your life plus. Mm-hmm. And I would say like they're going to help you make very, very important decisions for the thing that you're devoting your life to. So you better be aligned as much as you can. And yes, you're running a process. Yes, you're trying to maximize valuation and cost of capital and all these different things. But Firstmark wasn't the highest term sheet. Mm-hmm. We actually took a, a, a discount. Um, they weren't the cheapest term sheet either, but mm-hmm. they weren't the highest term sheet. And um, we chose Firstmark and we chose working with Rick specifically because he was passionate about the parts of the mission that were most important to us. Mm-hmm. And I think that that like philosophical mission alignment, as well as really emphasizing, always trying to take the longest view in the room, mm-hmm. which I think, and we can talk about this a lot, but you, you know, Rick's brought it up a couple of times is how to build trust with customers. I think the same is like how you build trust with investors. Like that doesn't happen overnight. It's not like Rick wired us money and suddenly we were as comfortable as we are today. And, you know, we, we had the relationship that we do today. Like it is built over time by dealing through highs and lows. We talk about, you know, founders and funders, like what leads to those types of things, what leads to those, that element of just trust. just rename the pod. Absolutely. We, we, even, have we even have, we even have the graphic no, 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 like, re- in the podcast well, store. We can swap, we can swap that out. We can I swap love it. that out. You know, we should have workshopped it a little bit. I almost texted you today. What if we had taken out 
Is that like too startup-y circa like 2015? Yeah, yeah, a little bit. You would have hated that, right? What do you make of how quickly he can actually make decisions on things that like you thought it might be a discussion? He's like, no, I hate that or something like that. He does that, right? Like you just said, I, you just said I yeah. have a Dan voice. He has a voice <laughs> when he's very quick, totally. to, right? Like, like so. Well, I man, it's clear. Who wants to take the ease out? Oh, I know. Amanda said the same thing to me. She said, that's stupid. It saved me like yeah. that look from you. Yeah, he is, I think what's, what's really important and for whatever reason I do think some founders sort of take offense to this I think you build up over time which is I don't want to have doubt with where Rick stands I want to know his opinion and then it's a very extremely valuable data point that then I have to factor in into my decision making process if he's if he's not clear with what he thinks is a good or bad idea how are we supposed to pressure test it how am I supposed to even take in that data point so I appreciate the the clarity and the decisiveness. And I think that that's one of the reasons why we work really well together and why we've been able to build that trust. Rick, so, so you guys, I mean, you often say, and, and I love you've given, uh, I think, our listeners on the pod, but uh, I've heard you, you know, this, this idea of the longest view in the room, it's kind of easy to say, but over time, it either plays out or it doesn't. And I've yeah. met actually probably a dozen of your portfolio company founders like Z, and they all reiterate. What is it that you guys have been able to kind of really put that in practice? You know, it's one thing to say it and kind of win deals and, and the like. And I'll just say this is that I know that you guys, whenever you guys are both in town on a Saturday, mm -hmm. you guys are having breakfast, you yeah. guys are yeah. taking a long walk, you're working yes. through things. I know it's not always a fun little brunch. You know what it's I mean? Like, it's, not, it's, not, it's not always work. And it's not always work. I mean, talk to me a little bit about that because and also proximity. I know that you've often said it's like, you know, we invest in companies everywhere, but yeah. This relationship is really special, and it happens to be right here in New York City also. Z lives a couple blocks from here. Yeah, I know. So it's easy. We go walk our dogs, or my dog doesn't necessarily get along with other no. dogs. If I had a friendly dog, uh, that could that could happen. We've taken uh, the Fox Brown out for a walk. Yeah, we like to invest companies as close to our headquarters as possible and, be, and being able to help them. And you could say, hey, I'm having... Second thoughts about this, can we grab a coffee where can I come by or can we do this in person? And Zach and his CFO came over last week to say, hey, we're thinking about a couple of different scenarios. We want to play this out. How about we come over and walk through it? And everyone knows in person's multiple times better. And you get the nonverbal non behavior, you get the English, no one's looking at their phone with their other hand, whatever that may be. So in-person matters and therefore proximity matters. And therefore, if you're trying to build a deep trusted relationship, that's all compounded by some of those things. So whether it's a it's a walk with your dog, whether it's an in-person meeting to go through financial scenarios, or whether it's a conversation if you're either having a good or a bad day, all those things really, really matter to developing a long-term trust. And then think about the longest view in the room, you have a couple hard decisions, right? You I mean you're trying you try to minimize the decisions you make or the decisions you agonize over. So you could say very quick nose to a lot of things. And that's probably important to not create decision fatigue. But then the really hard one is saying, all right, well, how do I think about this and not what's going to be easy in the moment? And I think part of the longest view in the room has a couple different planks. One of it is saying it's easy to go along with conventional wisdom in the moment, whether you're in a partner's meeting or a board meeting or with someone else and saying, oh, see, you're so smart. You're right. Whatever you think is what I think too. That with that, if that's not the right long-term thing for the company, that's going to come out and hurt the company. It actually comes out and hurts everybody in the mm -hmm. end because he's going to be like, yeah, that guy is just kind of a sycophant. I'm not going to really trust him because he's just really parroting back what I said. I really want someone where the best people really want someone who challenges their opinion sometimes takes the opposite side, sometimes just to create some tension in a conversation where everybody else might be going around. And then being able to think about in 10 years, do we feel better that we made these decisions? Because sometimes it's easy, sometimes it's hard, but having the longest view enables you to have a much different perspective around companies. L let me go back to Z. You said something, it wasn't the highest offer from First Mark. Yeah. Okay. It wasn't the lowest offer. So this is Seed? Series A. Series A. Series A. Okay. And you led the Series A. Yes. And then that's when you went on the board. Yes. Let's flush this out here, guys, that we had this conversation. Conversation like what, what was the thing? Because obviously there's a lot of folks back then, okay, who were taking yeah. the biggest number, right? Yeah, that sort of thing. So yeah, always like and 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 Rick, you know, talking to you over the years, it sounds like that that's a situation you often find yourselves in. You we're know, usually you, the lowest. So yeah. uh, so it was new to know that you know we weren't the lowest here. So it's an uncomfortable place for me. But 
you know, we're rarely the highest and therefore we try to portray value. We try to, you know, play things like the longest view in the room. But oftentimes in a world where people sometimes say one thing and do the other or trying to say things just to win a deal, it's hard to figure out, you know, how that really plays out. Obviously, you use references, you use, you know, entrepreneurs you've worked with for a decade and have them call and say, actually, this is this is all true. Mm -hmm. But I would love to hear what ZS say about be on the other side of that conversation. So we raised our seed round from people that we had worked with in the past. Mm -hmm. Box Group, Alexis, mm -hmm. uh, GC, a lot of those people we had we had worked with in the past. Rick was the lead of our Series A with someone that I, I had not worked with in the past. So one of the things that really stood out to me and to the team was during our pitch process, you would be very surprised by the number of people who like laughed. Like they thought we were laughing together. They're really kind of laughing at my mm -hmm. story. Mm -hmm. Or they would make jokes at the wrong moments where they were either uncomfortable talking about the topic or they don't think they saw the importance of what we were trying to build. And so I think founders can tell a lot about how someone, I mean, and, and VCs can do the same, but what questions is someone asking? What are they gravitating towards uh, like around the business? Why are they excited to invest $10 million into this idea? What's their level of engagement? The other thing that stood out to us is Rick was one of the first people that we met uh, in the process and his level of conviction was not dictated by the process. As much as a, like a founder, you try to run a very, very tight process. Mm -hmm. You try to keep everyone on the same schedule. You try to create competition. And I would say like fundraising is something that had to become a core competency of the company because we needed a cheaper cost of capital as a competitive advantage. Mm -hmm. Rick, what, 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 what were some of the questions that you asked? Again, you've been through that process yeah, on yeah, many occasions, winning and losing out on those things. I think the key things are, hey, do you really like this person? Yeah. Do you trust this person? And you, know, you meet a ton of people, so that comes out. Do they really understand the product that they're delivering? Do they really understand the competitive landscape? You know, and how do each of those things matter? So I have partners who really love introverts who just want to code all day. I have partners who really like extroverts who are great fundraisers. I like a little bit of both. I like people and I really like people who understand their market and are obsessed with their market. They could talk about, you know, the four hour podcast with one of their partners. They could talk about why someone's launching tomorrow. And yes, I already saw the deck. I read the press release. And I think they're different or the same for these reasons. And I think that's incredibly correlated to long-term success. I think this is really important because, you know, when when you had the idea for Row all those years back. It was a very personal thing, yeah. uh, obviously. And you just went through that with your family and some of your own needs and trying to replicate your dad through software. And obviously Rick saw that and thought it was something that he wanted to get all in on. But just, I, I want to say within the last couple of years, you have keyed on a mega trend. You were early on it, no doubt about it. And I know this because I literally stare at my Bloomberg and my fast cut yes. machines and I'm talking about mega trends, investing and and, and not obviously as much as in private like a venture market. capitalist. Yeah, well, what, what, what I'm saying, it didn't happen onto this thing. You made a conscious decision to investigate it. It was backed by a whole host of data, and then you went all in. And so I want to know a little bit about how this came about with you guys, like kind of getting your investors to buy in, obviously very close advisors and the like, because we're talking about GLP-1s. And I started out this conversation by saying, I, I really do believe you're one of the foremost experts on it. You're not thinking about it as a pharma exec. You're thinking about it in a holistic manner. So let's talk about how you got into that and where you guys are in that kind of phase right here. There's so much there. I, I wouldn't say that I'm one of the foremost experts. I, I'd say that I think I think Roe has a very unique vantage point that it and it gives me a, an interesting perspective because we've helped hundreds of thousands of patients start their obesity journey across the country and we can see of all ages and demos and income levels and levels of insurance and we can see the impact that different medications have over different time horizons. I think that we get a really interesting real-time perspective that others just don't from a sheer data perspective. I think that it was this combination, I deeply believe this and we talk a lot about this at Roe, which is you need data to move the brain, you need a story to move a heart, mm -hmm. and you need both to move a human. Mm -hmm. And we had both of those things in my mind when we started treating obesity about three years ago. We saw in the data patients asking about it. Whenever you're in a category, you look at what the future of that category might be. So you look at the pharma pipeline and mm -hmm. what might be there. You also think about obesity is just such an enormous problem. Totally. Yeah, but you but were never been you, anything. You weren't serving the obesity market with pharmaceuticals back then. We we were. There was there was there was a product called Plenity. It was a FDA. I remember it. Yep. I, I yeah. mean, I remember what it and was. It had very 
it, it, obesity has always been a massive market, but it, it's typically not been a successful, and, and they talked about this in the Acquired podcast, right? It's typically not been a successful product from a pharmaceutical perspective. It's been a very large market from everything from like, you know, you could, from snake oil to gyms to food to whatever it may be. And those are, there are legitimate components to that. But there hasn't been a population level scalable intervention in a way that there's the potential for it. There was the potential for GLP-1s, I would say, plus adjacent drug classes as Mm -hmm. well, but GLP-1s plus to be that effective scalable solution, right? We talked about this on the pod, but I think it's worth reiterating. There were five things that GLP-1s currently satisfy that no other drug in medicine has ever done before, which is the majority of the U.S. population is eligible for it. Mm -hmm. It's extremely effective. So it's two, three, four times more effective than previous interventions, excluding surgery, which is the third one. It is scalable. So bariatric surgery, highly effective, only about 250,000 a year. It would take 100 years to currently, at current pace, to treat the people who have severe obesity would be eligible for it. Patients want it. Patients don't always want things they're eligible for that Mm -hmm. are effective. And the healthcare system wants patients Mm -hmm. to have different important stakeholders, pharma, providers, PBMs, pharmacies. One could argue over time insurance will, will want it. So you have these five things that have never happened before in medicine. This is kind of easier for us to articulate in retrospect. If you're asking like why we made, and I'd be curious Rick's thoughts here, but I think we made an uncomfortably large bet uncomfortably early Mm -hmm. that many people as it was happening probably thought it wasn't a good investment or a good use of time. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's one of the things that we talk about in terms of taking the longest view of the room. It is exceedingly uncomfortable until dot, dot, dot. Right. Yeah, I think. I mean, we were early, and I think it speaks to two things. It speaks to I think that the the board was willing to go all in on something new, and not like we burned the boats on things like ED mm-hmm. or the other conditions we were treating. That we respected those patients. We actually realized that obesity was kind of a core problem with ED, and it was so core to how we again going back to these or one of his original insights of. You know, ED is an engine light for someone's health. And how do you go back to treating somebody proactively and then earning their trust and helping them get through these conditions? If obesity is, is a lot of the core problem, how do we do that? And then how do we then pursue that mission if this can be very large? And then also the confidence that the board had in Z and the team that they did their work, right? So, hey, do you really understand the medication we really understand because we're not making that medication. We were relying on, on Lily and, and Novo at mm-hmm. the time that do we understand this enough? Do we understand this mega trend? And do we have confidence that the team has done their work? Because I'm never going to understand the drugs nor some of the side effects in the research as well as the team there. So do we have enough confidence in them as a proxy to be able to go all in? I think it speaks volumes for the team that he brought together and the confidence the board has in him to be able to make that type of bet. Because even at the time, we're a company worth well over a billion dollars with hundreds of millions of dollars in cash, and we're placing a very large bet on it. But it was completely right, completely early, and somewhat contrarian. Mm -hmm. And that's how you build great companies. I mean, like, so are we just scratching the surface and the adoption of these? I think 100%. 80% of people who are taking GLP runs right now are doing it for diabetes. Diabetes. Mm-hmm. And again, the majority of the U.S. population is eligible for this drug. Mm-hmm. The minority of insurance companies cover it. Twelve states for Medicaid cover it. Uh, government covers it for employees, and it's not covered on Medicare. They're prohibited from doing it. It's actually written into Medicare Part D that you cannot cover anti-obesity medications or weight loss medications. I think that's one of the reasons, as a side note, why you, why you see Novo and Lilly pursuing these additional studies to show underlying health benefits from chronic kidney disease, reduction in heart attacks, sleep apnea, Alzheimer's, all to basically, if you think about it from a Medicare perspective, those are the things that they cover. So if it's covered for type 2 diabetes, if it's covered for chronic kidney disease, if it's covered for these things, it's going to be eventually. Well, I think they were saying obesity was not a core health condition, more they, superficial. But what we've learned That's since right. they wrote That's that right. was obesity is the core problem that creates all these knockdown effects through diabetes, through heart disease, strokes, et cetera, which costs you know tens of trillions of dollars to the American government. And, and obesity treatments, particularly pharmaceutical treatments, they do have a checkered history. And so I think it, it was understandable at the time. It was 20 years ago, but it was understandable at the time why M- Medicare, you know, part, why that's written into Part D. Yeah. Well, you know, you said you talked to thousands of patients. I think people who've listened to you and me on the pod, we've talked about my own experience with it. If it's not something like that you've actually gone down this path, you know, for me, I've been on GLP-1 
for a year. I've been doing it through Robotti. I'm like, and you and I have talked about it the whole way. It's absolutely amazing. You know, I'm down 15%. That's what they say. You can lose up to 15%. I lost 15%. It's changed my life in so many different ways. So it's just for me, like I'm living proof with it. And I will also say that I have friends who are also taking these drugs for a lot of the same reasons. We're all vain. We all, you know, want, want to feel healthier, look healthier and that sort of thing. But a lot of folks are doing it because they do want to be healthier, live healthier lives. What I've experienced through the Robotic program, though, is like all of those intricacies of dealing with doctors and dealing with the insurance companies and dealing with pharmacies and dealing with all those sorts of things. That's, I, I think, huge part of the process for me. It just kind of made it something I was able to be and, and do and be successful at it over And it's complex, right? You're trying to deal with something you maybe never talked to someone before, you know, even the delivery mechanism of the pen and being able to yeah. understand that. And then the way to be able to have that doctor, that confidant in your pocket, being able to message them, understanding how this, you know, how this works. Are you approved for insurance? When that refill's coming, having all those things managed, taken care of, as well as any other questions. I think, you know, compared to where healthcare is going, where how it might have been for our parents, where there was a tremendous power distance between you and the doctor, you know, you would never think about messaging, calling up the doctor and being like, I just don't, I'm, I'm concerned about this. Can you talk to me about it? That wasn't the way it was working. But now, especially as society's changed and now as providers, are becoming more empathetic, more open to that conversation, and you trust that provider, that provider wants to work with you, it's really unlocking a lot of the best parts of the healthcare system. We kind of hit that topic of, of investing in megatrends. You obviously hit it. You made a big bet in that, okay? And so one of the things that's interesting, I just think about what's going on in AI, and Rick, you and I have talked about it in the course, pod sir. a lot. There's lots of different ways to express a view in a megatrend. You can obviously go straight for the source. Usually, those are pretty expensive. They get really crowded, but then there's that idea of picking and shovels, right? Yes. And so kind of figuring it out. And I almost feel like you have a combination of both with what's going on um, in row. How do you think about it? Because we spent a lot of time talking about what you're trying to provide to your customers. We've talked about your relationship with one of your key investors and advisors. But from here on out, I mean, you're going to ride this megatrend. You're going to help kind of make it something that is not just investing in the actual drug company and the like. How do you think about it as a CEO of a company who has a whole host of different sort of stakeholders? How are you thinking about this going forward? Because ultimately, you will be a public company, I'm assuming. You know what I mean? Um, and there's going to be lots of different ways to express views um, in this trend that you know some people are saying we're at tens of billions of dollars. It could be hundreds of billions of dollars over the next 20 years. I, I think that there's one really sort of inconvenient truth in healthcare that people don't talk nearly enough about. Um, and I think that's one of the things that we're trying to solve over time. And this is where it, it comes back to taking the longest view in the room, but what we're trying to solve with the body program, which is that the the inconvenient truth in healthcare, I think the biggest, if not one of the biggest, is that there are just, there are too many patients and too few providers. Mm -hmm. um, and what that ultimately means is that if you do basic level arithmetic, um, you cannot offer everyone who deserves and needs it the same exact type of experience that the traditional healthcare system has described as the quote unquote ideal experience. Mm -hmm. It's impossible. You run out of just sheer amount of time. And then you chop it by specialty, you chop it by location and geography and rural access and all of these different things. And so ultimately what you need to do um, and our healthcare system has largely, I think, solved, this is something that the Acquired Podcast, I think, did a great job mm -hmm. about. The, our healthcare system has largely solved the reasons why we die young, right? We've solved uh, major infectious diseases, largely built around acute care, but now the majority of people are dying from, from chronic disease. And so the, the challenge becomes, though, if you have too many patients and too few providers, especially the majority of providers, I think, are over 55, so they're, they're going to age out is how with technology, some of the stuff you talked about with AI, the, the very principle of like leverage, right? Something from the printing press to the iPhone, we use leverage to be able to turn luxuries into commodities. Right now, healthcare is a handmade luxury good. And that is horrible. To it's across the country, it's, across the world, it's horrible. In the richest country in the world, it's just unacceptable. Um, and so the idea though, is how do you take that handmade luxury good and how do you give everyone access to that luxury? Well, you have technology that ultimately, it's not the same exact experience because you need to in invent a new one, but it is the same, if not even a higher quality of care over time for more and more people. So I think that that's one of the things when we think about being a public company or we think about, hey, what what is Rose's role over time, which is 
yeah, there's supply constraints right now, but ultimately they'll solve the supply mm -hmm. constraints. We'll go injectables to orals. We'll add, you know, from weekly to monthly injections. You name it, there's a tremendous pipeline there. But ultimately, what I think people miss is that you still need amazing healthcare delivery and wrapped around uh, high quality obesity care and cardiometabolic more more generally to manage patients and to help them uh, and to provide uh, unbelievable access to chronic care management. That requires to be able to do that um, with a shrinking provider population while you have an aging population that where obesity is rising. You need incredible technology that fundamentally like creates leverage in our healthcare system so that the marginal person can actually get help because right now it's impossible. And so that to me is like when I think about, hey, how do you scale my dad to and that experience that I grew up with, not just to a few million people, which we've helped treat now, but like, could you create a care delivery platform that could take care of tens of millions of people at the same, if not a higher quality of care? I, I believe it is like fundamentally possible. And I believe that actually in order to, while doing it, you would actually reduce the cost overall of, of healthcare. People talk about how large the healthcare market is. It's for tr trillion dollars. And a lot of our investors and, and board likes to talk about this where it could and should be half the size. Like that's a bad thing, how large mm -hmm. it is. But I think that there's so many statistics we could go through, through life expectancy, through access to, to high quality care. But ultimately that's, I think, one of the things that we think about where we're going is how can we turn the luxury handmade good that is healthcare today and give that to, to everyone through the lens of the goals they want to achieve. And that's the exciting thing, that Roe is basically creating a product which democratizes the access to high-quality healthcare. So it's not just Roe Body, it's not just Roe Sexual Health, it's a platform which democratizes access to healthcare, which makes everybody feel better, and they're doing it in an empathetic way that's both proactive and kind. And I think that's what's going to be the most exciting thing in the longest view in the room. Well, it's interesting to me, just as somebody who's like tracking this from like the public market standpoint, um, is like when we think about how obesity drugs have just come on the scene, and then those two companies combined, Novo and Lilly, have Lilly gained like three quarters of a trillion dollars in market cap, and you see all these other companies trying to get in there. If you guys do what you just said you hope to do, and you're already scratching the surface in, in a good way, you know, then you could do it again, to your point, Rick, with Alzheimer's. Like, there's no shortage of massive, like, opportunities that exist there, and you're basically reducing the size of the healthcare system, which is really inefficient and making it a lot more efficient and adding a lot more value to, uh, I guess, consumers. Yeah, healthcare has been sort of, you know, productivity immune over the last yeah. 20 years. And it, it is it is labor addicted, right? Disproportionately in terms of adding employees relative to even re revenue. So I think it's it's uh, labor addicted, it's productivity immune. It's extremely incumbent dominated, um, right? Like probably 150 people run our healthcare system. Yeah. And so I do think that there is such an opportunity for technology. It's cheesy, but to, to democratize access and turn that luxury into a commodity. And I think a care delivery system that can facilitate the widespread distribution of these new, really powerful treatments, whatever it comes, right? We're excited by the pipeline from Novo Lilly, 85 other, yeah. you know, GLP-1 plus that let's say are in, in the pipeline. So for us, we're excited and we can we can be that platform that delivers new treatments uh, across the country. Well, it's interesting where you guys are right now. Again, it, you know, we've spent a lot of time on the big pharma companies that are having a lot of success. We know that there's going to be a lot of strategic M&A with, um, you know, smaller biotech companies. We're looking that there's going to be a, a whole host of successes and failures of other pharma companies who are trying to iterate on the existing versions of these. It's interesting to me, though, that we just um, as an investment community, at least from the public market lens, we haven't spent a lot of time on the picks and shovels. That's one of the reasons why I, I'm fascinated with what you're doing. I have a personal experience with it. Rick has obviously a strong vested interest, both personally and you and the success of Roe. Zach, Rick, thanks a lot for being here. Really appreciate it. Let's do it again soon. Thank you. Awesome. Thank thanks, you. Thanks, guys. If you like what you heard, make sure to hit follow and leave us a review. It helps other people find the show. We also want to hear from you. Email us at contact at riskreversal.com.